Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, wherever you are in the world. It is me again, Damien Barr. I have been sifting, I have been editing, I have been reading, and I have discovered for you another delightful salon exclusive. This is a book by Rebecca Waite, who you will know for her novel, Our Fathers, which was a Guardian Book of the Year. She returns now with another bestseller in the making. It's called, I'm Sorry You Feel That Way. Words nobody ever wants to hear, words that nobody ever really means, do they? It's about a dysfunctional family, two sisters called Alice and Hannah, with no H at the end, and their mother Celia. Rebecca has a really good understanding of what makes people tick, so her characters feel very real, very human, very flawed, vulnerable, sympathetic. There are no villains, there are no heroes in this novel, only very real people with their very complicated lives on display. The cover is really good and they really often aren't at the minute. I'm finding right now for the last couple of weeks I've been sent loads of books with terrible covers but I really like this one. It's a pair of exhausted looking young women leaning into one another. Is there anything more relatable for the current moment? Here's Rebecca with a bit more about the book and the reading that she has prepared for us today. Hello, I'm Rebecca Waite and I'm delighted to be reading an extract for listeners of Damien Barr's Literary Salon from my new book, I'm Sorry You Feel That Way. The novel's about twin sisters, Alice and Hannah, and their fractured relationship with each other and with their controlling mother, Celia. It's a book about the toxic inheritance of family dysfunction and how thin the line can be between comedy and tragedy. When I came to write the novel, I was particularly interested in exploring the legacy of dysfunctional parents and especially toxic mothers. I feel a bit conflicted about focusing so much on this because I think fathers generally do get an easier ride. But at the same time, it's such a primal wound if we feel our mother doesn't love us or if her version of love is destructive or broken, and it can play out across our whole lives. I wanted to explore the ways in which this primal wound could affect the sisters, Alice and Hannah, and how it's shaped the relationship between them. I'm also really interested in the ways in which people deceive themselves. Even within the same family, we each inhabit different realities, and can be so firmly convinced that our own perspective and responses are right, and everyone else's are flawed. Then, the more threatened we feel, and the more fiercely we defend our own way of looking at the world, the trickier our relationships with other people become. The extract I'm going to read is from near the start of the novel, and features the mother, Celia, when she was a child herself. Although Celia, as an adult, is a somewhat nightmarish mother to her own daughters, it was important to me not to present her solely as a monstrous character. She has damage of her own, like most of us. The extract focuses on her experience of growing up alongside her own sister, Katie, who begins to unravel with frightening rapidity when the girls are teenagers. Sallow and unprepossessing. Here is Celia at eight, unloved and unlovely. Her nose is beaky and her eyes are a touch too deep set, though their colour, a bright clear green, is admittedly striking. Her skin has an unhealthy yellowish tinge. Some people grow into their looks, Celia's mother tells her, which perplexes Celia, because at eight she still has not worked out that she is not pretty. 
It is true that people often comment on the beauty of Celia's older sister Katie and never seem to mention Celia's looks, but somehow Celia has never inferred anything from this. It helps that Katie is pretty in a very obvious way, with golden hair and blue eyes, a golden luster to her skin too, like the statue of a goddess. People, Celia has observed, are not very imaginative and will, in almost every case, say what is obvious, not what is interesting. Celia is a quiet and watchful child, and teachers find her unsettling. She rarely laughs. She's rather intense, her form teacher writes in her report. Celia believes this is a compliment. The penny still does not drop when they are discussing in the playground what their husbands will do, and Celia says hers will be a doctor. You won't have a husband, another girl says, and the others giggle. Celia thinks this is a reference to her intellect. It's all right, she reassures them. Most men don't want silly wives these days. Celia has learned this from her mother, who takes a keen interest in societal trends. It is the sixties. The world is changing. But the others still giggle at her, and Celia is annoyed. She can't bear that way they have of laughing. She tries to follow them when they move away from her. It is Katie, aged 11, who breaks the news to Celia shortly before Celia's ninth birthday. You're ugly, she tells her flatly. Everybody knows it. I heard Mummy saying it to Daddy. But she didn't say ugly. She said unprepossessing. I looked it up in the dictionary and it means ugly. Katie does not speak with malice, but in that expressionless manner characteristic of her. If she had seemed to intend it cruelly, Celia might not have taken it so much to heart. In her bedroom, she studies her own tear-stained face in the mirror. Unprepossessing. Yes, she can see it now. Katie is solitary like Celia, but without any of Celia's desperate efforts to change this. At school, Katie is shy and avoids other children, spending her breaks in the library or even, sometimes, the toilet. Occasionally, Celia goes to find Katie at lunchtime, but Katie tells her to go away or even ignores her entirely. Celia has heard that sisters are often best friends. She is not completely sure, but she does not think that she and Katie are best friends. At home, she has tried to get Katie to play with her, but Katie prefers to play alone, often seeming to be lost in a world of her own. She adores the family cat, Rhubarb, and spends a lot of time stroking him and talking to him. Despite Katie's oddness, she has a gentleness about her which, added to her beauty, makes people tender towards her. Away with the fairies, their father says fondly. She has her head in the clouds, that one. It is an early indication to Celia that prepossessing girls get away with more than unprepossessing girls. Given that Katie is the pretty one, it seems only fair for Celia to be the clever one. However, life, as she is fast learning, is not fair. Until secondary school, she believes herself to be an intellectual. She's been collecting Latin phrases for years, which she tries to work into everyday conversation. It's not the broccoli per se that I don't like, she tells everyone at dinner. It's the mushiness. But mushiness is not a sine qua non of broccoli. God, you're a cretin, Katie says. Although both Celia and Katie pass the 11 plus and get into the local girls' grammar school, once there, neither really distinguishes herself. They never make it near the top of the class, 
and in more than one subject they are close to the bottom. Despite the similar mediocrity of their report cards, it is only with Celia that their mother brings up the prospect of university. You could get a degree, she tells her. Lots of girls go to university these days. Then you might become a teacher at a nice girls' school. Celia, 13 now, is suspicious. She has not found girls' schools to be particularly nice places. Will Katie go to university, she asks. Katie is currently studying in a desultory fashion for her O-levels. Her mother is evasive. She might, I suppose. We'll see. It does not matter whether or not Katie goes to university, Celia realises. Katie will get married. There have been a few boyfriends already, but no one has lasted long. Katie accuses each boyfriend in turn of being unfaithful, as though these gawky adolescents are irresistible Lotharios besieged by hordes of women. Nonetheless, it is only after the dispatch of boyfriend number three, the calm, adoring Robbie, that it occurs to Celia that the problem might lie with Katie herself. You can't trust them, Katie tells her. You can't trust any of them. Celia nods, as she always does, but she looks at Katie with new eyes. By sixteen, Katie, so biddable in early childhood, has become quarrelsome and angry. Having had a fluid, transparent quality to her when she was younger, so that she might enter and leave rooms without anyone noticing, now she makes her presence felt in the slamming of doors. She accuses her parents of upsetting her when they ask her to do the washing up or tidy away her things. Leave me alone! You're always getting at me, upsetting me! So that in the end they give up and cease asking much of her at all. Celia is still expected to do the washing up, regardless of whether or not she is upset. It is Celia whom Katie dislikes most of all. You're always looking at me, Katie tells her. Stop watching me, creep. Celia, it is true, does have a habit of looking at people too intently, but she can hardly help it. Katie has become an interesting study. You're all against me, Katie tells them at breakfast one day. Celia has always been jealous of me, and you, this to her parents, have encouraged her. Darling, no, we haven't, their mother says. You've indulged her moods, Katie says. What moods, Celia says, but everyone ignores her. Oh, we haven't indulged them, their mother says. You've always taken her side, Katie says, indulged her jealousy. We've never taken anyone's side. But I'm not even jealous, Celia protests, though nobody is listening. Her sister's volatility makes the house tremble. Celia wakes in the night to find Katie sitting on the edge of her bed, staring at her. Celia only just stops herself from screaming and manages to say, What are you doing? Keeping an eye on you, Katie says darkly. After glowering at Celia a moment longer, she gets up and goes back to her own room. It is also around this time that Celia begins to be aware of her surroundings. This makes her restless and unhappy. Nobody can live a romantic life in the Peterborough suburbs. Celia knows. Celia has tried. Their street looks the same as every street around it, and their house is the same as all the others on the street. Celia becomes bitterly aware that she has never travelled anywhere, except to Wales on holiday, which hardly counts. Though in some ways, perhaps she can say she has. She has a feeling that one suburb looks much the same as another, so maybe she can claim to have been all over the country. This thought is not encouraging. Beyond the monotony of the city outskirts, there is nothing better waiting. When the houses run out, the fens take over, 
stretching out in a relentless flat expanse until their edges blur into the horizon. The dispiriting blankness of it all. Celia feels it seeping inside her, dulling her senses, flattening her corners. She tries to imagine what kind of life she will live as an adult, but she can never picture it. She says to Katie, Where do you want to live when you're older? And Katie replies, What? So you can follow me? Leave me alone. I've got my eye on you. It worries Celia that she is unable to imagine anything that doesn't look like this. The teenaged angst can almost smell it. And actually now I think about it, teenaged angst is a really good smell for a scented candle. I love that last line. She is unable to imagine anything that doesn't look like this. Oofed. Because at that age, you just do not have the benefit of time to give you perspective. And I really resonated, or rather, it really resonated with me. And of course, the dramatic irony is that Celia is destined to repeat these patterns with her own children. The book is a masterclass in writing tragicomic families and you will want to get your hands on a copy of I'm Sorry You Feel That Way by Rebecca Waite at your nearest independent bookshop. Oh, can you hear a seagull in the background? Can you hear that? I'm recording this here in Brighton and the seagulls are around. If you're in Brighton, we have many lovely independent bookshops. Or you can get it from the Salons bookshop online and we have our own bookshop at bookshop.org. So thank you to Rebecca Waite for joining us on the salon today and thank you for listening. We love to hear from you, so please be in touch. Thanks for listening. Join us again soon. <laughs>